Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Ah, Natalie, we finally made it. The end of the Supreme Court term is here. Last day. It's so exciting. <laughs> yep. So, this, so the court obviously is now on summer recess, having just handed down its last two big decisions of the term. We're going to get into those. But yeah, it's been a pretty hectic week here at the Supreme Court, um, stretching all the way back to Tuesday with a number of orders and a number of other opinions. So the justices were really trying to get out the door, get everything tied up before, you know, doing their, I guess, back to usual rounds of law school seminars and I suppose some vacationing in there too before the the next term kicks off in October. I should hope they're taking some time off to just like sit on a beach or, you know, relax by a lake or something. Right. I mean, I've said this before on the term, but um, uh, Roberts famously said that only school children and Supreme Court justices are expected to and do take the whole summer off. So I think that they're going to be just fine. <laughs> well, it's quite a bit of work, as you said, that they pushed out this week. Uh, let's just kind of dive right in with today, last day. Uh, final decision uh, to close out the term was actually in a pair of consolidated cases about California's law that was requiring charitable organizations to disclose donor tax information. I know we've talked about this one. It was kind of a, a big one on, on everyone's radar. Um, 6-3 decision, the court said that the rule is unconstitutional. Um, they said basically the blanket disclosure chills First Amendment rights to association and is not justified by the state's interest in regulating charities. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion. Uh, I will say this was in you know classic form to one of the final opinions there were like a lot of like parts where some folks agreed and some had different opinions uh i am not going to get into all those parts (laughs) but kind of real broad strokes um you know the, the big thing about this case was whether it should be held to like a strict scrutiny versus exacting scrutiny standard. Uh, the stuff and, of headlines right there. Strict stuff of headlines, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, big point was the court said exacting scrutiny is the test and that it requires um, that when the government makes you disclose information, it has to be narrowly tailored to an asserted interest from the government. Um, Roberts and the majority basically said the law doesn't meet this test because just, you know, the enormous amounts of sensitive information collected did not form an integral part of California's fraud detection efforts. California had, you know, said, hey, we want to do this because it's going to make it easier for us to combat, you know, potential fraud happening Self-dealing, through donor giving. Like that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it was kind of an interesting case where this is a situation where um, California was asking for donor information that these charities already provide to the IRS, but they were they wanted it to go to their attorney general's office for some of these types of you know fraud investigations. So what what did some of the uh, dissenting justices say to to the court's decision to strike down this rule? So Justice Sotomayor wrote this dissent, and she was joined by Justices Kagan, Breyer, um, and basically they said that the plaintiffs, which you know for background included Americans for Prosperity Foundation, a conservative group. Uh, backed by the Koch family and the Thomas More Law Center, the, the Justice Sotomayor said that you know they had not dis- 
demonstrated a First Amendment burden. They hadn't demonstrated that this was going to chill their right to association. You know, the big concern everyone has been talking about was that, you know, if you have to provide this information and this information is, you know, potentially uh, gets out, California has been known to have some leaks, uh, hacks of, you know, with its own kind of government. Right. Because the promise was that they were keeping it secret, but I think in some instances, some of that info got out. Exactly. So, you know, Sotomayor and and the dissenting justice said basically like, look, though, you haven't demonstrated the First Amendment burden um, that this is going to chill it. She also voiced concerns that this is going to give basically a broad way to attack any disclosure rule um, that, you know, being able to kind of and she's just she's she said i quote vaguely wave uh first amendment privacy concerns against you know any kind of state regulation for reporting and disclosure is going to you know make it too easy to combat these and it, it basically puts a bullseye on these kind of rules that is a really interesting one and I, I suppose we'll continue to monitor some of the fallout and potentially more litigation challenging some of these other discrete Disclosure rules. Um, there, the other big ruling of the day uh, was in a case called Brnovich versus uh, DNC, and this is the big Voting Rights Act case that we've long been talking about on the show. And as predicted, it was a very divisive case. It was a six to three ruling um, where the court upheld two Arizona voting restrictions that were found by the Ninth Circuit to discriminate against minority voters. And the court's decision. Um, I think many people agree, further narrowed the 1965 Voting Rights Act. This is, you know, just, I think, around eight years after the famous Shelby County decision striking down the the pre-clearance provision of the VRA. Um, But in this case, uh, the court said that it's not enough to show that voting rules have a disparate impact on minority voters in order to bring a successful claim under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. So this is not Section 5, the preclearance stuff that was in Shelby that was struck down. This one has so to what's do with Section 2. Section two. So Section 2 is kind of the enforcement provision of the Voting Rights Act that allows people to effectively sue to challenge voting restrictions in states across the country um, that have that result in basically discrimination against minority uh, voting. And so this case dealt with um, Section 2B, which is essentially how you can make a successful claim that a voting restriction is an illegal, um, you know, a voting discrimination that violates this, you know, landmark 1965 statute. And so that was the claim that um, a number of Democratic groups had brought against Arizona for these two voting restrictions, but that the Supreme Court said you know, that the, the plaintiffs in this case could not show that these were, in fact, discriminatory and that they did not have discriminatory intent, even though they may have had a minimal disparate impact, they affected um, minority voters more than um, white voters. Okay, so can we take a step back and just kind of talk a little bit about what got us to the stage? Sure. So it, it dates back to April 2016 when the DNC and the Arizona Democratic Party, they filed a lawsuit challenging um, the state's House Bill uh, 2023. So this uh, law makes it a felony for anyone other than a family member, household member, or caregiver to turn in an individual's early ballot. And so then that was one of the restrictions that they had challenged. The other one was a restriction on out-of-precinct voting. So these claims were rejected, actually, originally at the district court level after a 10-day bench trial. 
and uh, and that decision was affirmed by a, a like a divided panel of the Ninth Circuit. But then it went all the way to the full Ninth Circuit, and so sitting on Bonk, the full Ninth Circuit struck down the regulations, finding that they in fact imposed a disparate burden on minority voters that was linked to social and historical conditions contributing to worse voter opportunities for minority minority voters than white voters enter the supreme court so this is what the supreme court has just ruled on as of this morning um where the court said that you gotta you can't just look to disparate impact here that would effectively you know uh threaten or jeopardize basically any effort by states to combat voting fraud um and you have to look at the totality of the circumstances and specifically whether minority voters had an equal opportunity to go to the ballot box. And in this case, in the case of these two Arizona voting restrictions, a you know six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court found that, that these voting restrictions did not deprive minority voters of an equal opportunity to vote. As you kind of just laid out here, definitely a divisive issue all the way up, you know, through the court system as it's been coming up to the Supreme Court. Uh, I imagine there was a strong dissent here. Yeah, no, this one was probably the most impassioned dissent of the term so far. I mean, the justices usually save these controversial rulings till the end of the term. And this today was no exception. Um, You had Justice Kagan kind of referencing the 2013 decision in Shelby County and saying that the the majority here, the conservative majority, the six Republican appointees to the court are further undermining the law. And Kagan writes, the court undermines section two in the right it provides. The majority fears that the statute Congress wrote is too radical, that it will invalidate too many state voting laws. So the majority writes its own set of rules limiting section two from multiple directions. She continues, what's tragic here is that the court has yet again rewritten in order to weaken a statute that stands as a monument to America's greatness and protects its basest impulses. What is tragic is that the court has damaged a statute designed to bring about the end of discrimination in voting. So obviously something that has triggered a strong reaction in the three liberal justices. And I think the broader fear is that it will make it a lot more difficult to prove violations of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act when challenging some of these voting restrictions in a lot of states, in fact, that we've been seeing come out of different legislatures around the country. Were there any other takes from any of the other justices that were notable? Well, there was a concurrence, I think, that was pretty interesting, written by Gorsuch that basically raised the whole question of whether individual plaintiffs have a cause of action to sue under the Voting Rights Act, but the court obviously didn't get to that. But I think just kind of going back to like the scope of this ruling, um, it's it's a tricky question because on the one hand, Alito obviously has made it a little bit more difficult for plaintiffs to prove a violation of the Voting Rights Act um, in that, you know, there's going to be more to it than just uh, an analysis of of the impact of a particular voting restriction on minority uh, voters, but at the same time, the court didn't even entertain arguments that like the the this section of the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional, and for the most part, upheld Section Two. Um, you know, while he says it's not the only uh, consideration, disparate impact is something that courts can look to as as well as the size of a burden on on voting. And so, you know, I, I think it's a it's a way narrower decision than, for instance, the 2013 decision in Shelby County, which. Let's 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 remember that actually struck down 
you know, the entire Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which required, um, you know, federal government preclearance of any changes to the voting laws in, you know, particular southern states with, with racist histories. So this isn't that, right? This is much narrower, but at the same time, this it's going to... This isn't gonna... that, although Justice Sotomayor, like, you know, pointed to Shelby and she's like, this is just a continuation of, you know, a potential weakening of, of Section 2. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what it is. In the in the broader scheme of things, you know, you could make the argument that this is a narrower decision than others, but it is, as you say, part of this pattern of weakening the Voting Rights Act. Um, and I think you'll probably see a lot of Republican legislatures around the country respond to this decision by enacting other um, voting restrictions that, you know, while facially neutral, you know, have potential impacts on minority voter turnout. Obviously, these two decisions from today are going to have long-lasting ramifications, and it's going to, you know, take a while to really see what the impacts are going to, how they're going to play out um, in, you know, the U.S. in our courts, etc. Um, but they were not the only decisions this week. Um, as is kind of we've talked about, the court was busy, kind of clearing its docket earlier in this week, also. Yeah, it was a busy week. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> it's almost easy to forget about like all the other things that happened <laughs> before today. That's how every term goes. When the last day, it's like you forget what happened just a few days before because the the rulings at the end of the term are just these big blockbusters with the with the fierce dissents. But in in this case, we actually had some some pretty interesting. Um, orders and opinions to come out earlier in the week. We'll just kind of round through some of them. Let's let's start off with some of the opinions this week. Um, on Tuesday, the court handed down Johnson versus Guzman Chavez. This was a decision holding that deported immigrants who return to the country for fear of persecution are not entitled to a bond hearing. That's a decision that uh, produced a, uh, a dissent again from the three liberal justices. And then do you want to take Penny's pipeline, Natalie? Yeah, that same day, the court backed a bid by private developers to seize New Jersey-owned land for the development of a $1 billion Penn East pipeline. So big, yeah, that was, big ruling yeah. for the company. Big ruling for the company and, and a kind of an interesting discussion of eminent domain law. So for people that are interested in that. One of my favorites. Um, so we talked about the stuff of headlines. Let's talk about the doctrine of Assigner estoppel. <laughs> so now, this normally is, my brain shuts down when you say that, but right. this is actually a really big one. So <laughs> you want to chat about that one for a second? Sure. Okay. So the case is called Minerva Surgical Incorporated versus um, Hologic Incorporated. So this was uh, also handed down on Tuesday. And the court in this case, it was a patent case. So the court upheld the doctrine of assigner estoppel, which is the idea that inventors can't argue that their own patents are invalid after they've assigned it to someone else. So say you invent something and then you, you know, assign this patent in a in a deal for money and later, you know, you're accused of infringing this patent that you've now assigned to someone else or maybe your company is. You can't then, you know, in 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 the courts say, "Oh, this patent is invalid because of XY reasons and you can't enforce it against me." So the courts say that's that runs up against assigner estoppel in the court there was a challenge to this doctrine saying it's nowhere to be found in the patent act but the court rejected that challenge and upheld the doctrine so an interesting win there for patent owners um natalie do you want to move on to orders so there was also a ton of orders that came out this week that i think bear mentioning in in our little wrap-up 
Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think one of the big ones was um, in a 5-4 vote on Tuesday with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joining the um, more liberal justices of the court. The, the court refused to lift the CDC's eviction moratorium, which is now set to expire on July 31st. Um, and you think, oh, a month. But it was actually a, a kind of a big thing because it, it the court basically um, declined to side with a realtor group that the CDC had overstepped its authority when putting um, a nationwide e- eviction hold. Well, it was kind of interesting because they they denied the application for, from the realtor associations. But, you know, if you read Kavanaugh's concurrence and he writes like a little he statement. have sympathy for Yeah, he explains them, yeah. that he kind of agrees with the underlying legal arguments that they did overstep, that the CDC overstepped its authority with this eviction moratorium. But he says since it's due to expire at the end of July anyway, it'll give more time for the distribution of, you know, rental assistance funds. Um, so I guess... I, you know, I, there was a statement from the realtor associations that they see it as kind of vindication of their claims, um, even though their application was ultimately denied. Um, but let's move on to another interesting one that caught people's attention. Um, Justice Clarence Thomas um, writing in a case where the court actually ended up denying cert that the federal pot ban may no longer be, quote, necessary or proper given the latitude that states now have to to legalize the use of marijuana. So that's one that's got people definitely talking. You wouldn't normally kind of first think Justice Thomas might be the one to come out, you know, against the federal pot ban, but... Uh yeah, this term has been full of all sorts of surprises. <laughs> but the, this term is full of all sorts of surprises. But, it, you know, he does explain, you know, he, he had a problem with basically the, the federal government kind of having this half in, half out. Like yeah. states are approving it, but the federal government's still banning it. And this doesn't make any sense, right? I, th- I so. think it's a case of Thomas hating the IRS more than he hates pot. <laughs> I don't know if I can <laughs> I don't know if I can get away with saying that, but... Um, that's my very uh, cynical take on it. Okay, so let's um, move along. There was a pretty big victory, I would say, for a transgender man um, at the Supreme Court after the court rejected an appeal from his former high school school board to you know uphold the constitutionality of the school board's transgender bathroom ban. So this that the, the bathroom ban was struck down as unconstitutional and the school board had appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, the court didn't rule on the case or anything, but it, it, it threw out the appeal. It denied it in an order without even any explanation. So that essentially upholds you know, his victory in court. So that was, uh, that was a, pretty, a pretty big win there. There was also a rare win uh, for plaintiffs in a police misconduct case. Um, as the court said, the Eighth Circuit was basically too quick to award qualified immunity to officers who allegedly suffocated a suspect um, with a 15-minute prone restraint, uh, a case that you know has parallels to the killing of George Floyd. Um, qualified immunity, as we've talked about before, is you know a very hard um, defense to get past. So mm-hmm. this is kind of a big thing for the court to say that. I, I totally agree um, that it doesn't necessarily signal like a huge shift away from the current doctrine of qualified immunity as it currently stands, but it was notable to see the court basically say that the Eighth Circuit didn't analyze this case within the proper framework when it you know, awarded qualified immunity to the police officers. They said they needed to 
you know, look a little bit more deeply into the circumstances of this suspect's death in police custody before just saying that the the police officers, you know, acted reasonably and used to did not use ex- constitutionally except or unconstitutionally excessive force in the case. So I think we've like the justices, we've we've cleared our docket, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> so as we record this um, at 1.38 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, we still do not have any retirement updates, at least from the Supreme Court bench. We did get don't some... Don't put it in the air. I don't think we're getting any. <laughs> well, I think... It, at my, If memory serves, it was around like 3 p.m. this time... Um, in 2018, when Kennedy's uh, retirement like reverberated around uh, Capitol Hill, but um, yeah, so I don't know. Do you th- you think so? You think we're in the clear? I think we're in the clear, but you know, I'm just I'm just worried that like if we do get news, it'll be like at like three o'clock on Friday, right before the long weekends, <laughs> and that's in, when they're going to break it. <laughs> right, and, and for our listeners. Um, when we talk about wanting or not wanting a retirement, it's not a reflection of any ideological preference. But selfishly, as journalists, we we don't we want to be able to get through the rest of this term without having to you know rush to the breaking news alerts, so to speak. Yeah. But of course, we will do so. And if in the event of any retirement, we will of course have a, an episode breaking all of that down. But in the meantime, Natalie, I think that's about it. That's about it. Although we are going to come back for one more episode to kind of just wrap up the term, take a step back, take a breath uh, from everything that's happened and just take a look back. So we'll have one more episode uh, next week, hopefully. Very excited for that. So we'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Uh, Contributing reporters this week, Daniel Tay and Andrew Wesney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. And this would be a great, a great time to leave a review. Thanks. It's Jimmy's birthday. It would be a great (laughs) birthday gift.